Senses pulled from clay. Summer, spring within a day. Wide sky, bench, train tracks. Short poem. Short poem. Haiku. Ah, haiku. It was very sporadic, and I was trying to put a name to the sporadic nature of it, but haiku. Well, I was trying to really condense things mm. into, what, like 17 syllables? Yeah. Because today's episode can't really be condensed at all. It can't. I will be surprised if it condenses into an episode. <laughs> today's episode topic is making, yeah. which is essentially all that Aaron and I talk about for the six years of our relationship. Sure. Would say. So we're going to try and condense it into an episode, and I am beyond excited for this conversation. Did you um, did you recognize like the poem that I was talking about? Wide sky bench train tracks. No. That's like my favorite place. Oh, I thought you said the poem you were referencing. No, the I place. mean the the place. Yes, your favorite place, behind my house on the trail. Thought it'd be a nice image to start off with. So it's this mm. nice trail where it's always summer. It's never winter. Mm because I've only been there really in the summer for large periods of time. And you sit on this bench and there's this train track carrying just beautiful mounds of coal. Mm. And it's just, I don't know why, I'm always very, insp very inspired to, to write there. It feels like a very poetic spot. I think it's because it's so open. Like mm. You can see the horizon. Yes. Somewhat rare. That's true. We wanted to structure this episode right with questions. Yeah. So should we share the questions with the audience? Okay, so the first one is... How does making help us grow as non-economic beings? Mm -hmm. And what were your thoughts on that, Alicia? Making is often economic. What we do for work is making, even if you're in the service industry, you are creating some kind of an experience or some kind of a product with your time that is then being sold for money. Yep. And so it's hard to separate our economic life with our creative life. But to answer the question... I thought about ways that I make just in everyday life and things that I do for hobbies, not for money. And the first thing that I thought of was that it's kind of non-economic entertainment. When you bake or when you write or sew, you're not contributing to the economy, but you're also not paying for a Netflix subscription or paying to go out to a cafe or paying someone else to entertain you. You are entertaining yourself, which I feel like we don't do that much. It's definitely a non-profitable mm -hmm. means of entertainment. Sometimes you do have to buy ingredients, it's true. paints, etc. One of the reasons, off topic, but one of the reasons I love writing is because it's just free. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't have paper, you can just do it in your head. It's true. So that's, I think, one of the first things that appealed uh, to me with it. But I agree, it's a, it's a way to spend time that isn't about... Making money or giving money. That was also my first observation about it, which is... Part of the beauty of creativity is when it's just for you, like you said, baking, mm -hmm. not to sell the brownies, mm -hmm. to eat them, mm -hmm. but also not even just to eat them. Because what I like about making, I mean, that sounds kind of like a, like we're deliberately using that word. It sounds kind of pretentious, but yeah, creation sounds maybe even more <laughs> self-aggrandizing. So making is what we went with. It's like a kind of performance art in that it's not just that you're painting a canvas or filling the brownie tray. Mm -hmm. It's that you're painting the two hours of time while you're painting. If mm -hmm. that makes sense. So you're painting the time. The time is the real mm -hmm. art. Yeah. Time's the only resource. It is the only resource. When you make music, you're painting the air, painting yeah. the, the sound waves of those few hours and maybe irritating your roommates, but still creating something. The next thing that I thought is 
kind of a bit more practical about making is that it encourages self-reliance and resistance to the economic system. Mm. So if you know how to sew your own clothes and the clothing industry collapses, you're not going to be left out to dry. Like you have an idea of how you could mend your things, how you could help out your friends. And that goes for almost all creative pursuits. That's right. I really like the way you said that as well, because at first I thought you were going to say it gives you more independence from the economy or from the whims of the economy mm -hmm. because you can create your own side hustle and things yeah. like that. But I like that you you mentioned its independence in a different way, which is if things collapse, mm -hmm. which a lot of people think they might. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, we already see it with like supply chains and stuff. You're not completely incompetent because you can't buy frozen meals or something mm -hmm. you can actually cook yeah and i think also the side hustle thing is true to an extent however so many of us who have podcasts or people who have blogs or even are selling products they're relying on instagram and they're relying on the internet working in order to sell and market their products which isn't a bad thing but that just is the case so if meta decides to pull facebook from the uk or whichever country that was those people are going to be in a really tough situation. That's true. Yeah, which I'm like, is now a new fear of mine. I love when fears are added to my list of things. I'm like, what if the podcast just dissolved? Anyway, that's an <laughs> existential moment for another I think day. We'd still find a way to get it out there. It would be kind of like this underground radio station. Probably. People would have to tune in and we'd yeah. be like, we'd have code names. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, my thoughts on the side hustle culture are that. It can be good because I can imagine it would be very empowering for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But also, I don't like the fact that it's almost a requirement in today's world, mm -hmm. which leads everyone to be constantly seeking to try and optimize their interests and every ounce of efficiency and profit they can squeeze out of their creative endeavors. Yeah, optimization. It, I've never thought of it like that, but... We really feel that pressure, don't we? Of well, like... Yeah, we do. I mean, Solocene is in a way a kind of side hustle. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to trying to grow, even though part of the message of Solocene is anti-social media, we, we unfortunately are kind of funneled into social media to try mm -hmm. and gain listeners. Yeah, there isn't really an alternative form of marketing anymore. But what I was going to say is that there's always this tension between the things that we would like to post mm -hmm. and perhaps the things that's like, oh, but that's not going to mm -hmm. get anywhere. Yeah, because we could make our pedal and dozer comic strip things that you have been planning. Yeah, the listeners don't know what that is, so they you don't have know to explain it. <laughs> so Aaron created these characters. We had this night where we created these little clay figurines, and we were going to make stop-motion stories with them. Yeah. However, we realized that would take a lot of time mm. and effort, and we may post it and it not do anything for the podcast. Yeah, I think mo most likely. And we'd be content with that but also we would like the podcast to grow so that we can therefore give more time to it and the, the cycle will continue then we can invite people in guests yeah i don't even think like the i mean the podcast is a good example but there are people whose side hustle is their main hustle mm -hmm. i'm talking about like photographers mm -hmm. there's a lot of photographers who because of their profession have to be posting and taking photos that they don't really care about mm -hmm. and i don't blame them for that because mm -hmm. that's just the way it is but it kind of sucks and there is always this thought in the back of my head that it's better to decorate the time as you mentioned than to decorate your wallet so it's like mm -hmm. 
for us, we could spend the two hours decorating our time with our claymation figurines, mm -hmm. and it'd be very fun. Mm -hmm. And maybe that should be all that matters. Yeah. We could probably talk for a long time about the difficulties of trying to market on social media despite not being fans of social media. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to mention that I started a blog. Yes. So I'm doing a plug eight minutes in, which is maybe a record for us. It might be record breaking, yeah. If you want to ask me the name of it, I don't remember, which is kind of amateurish of me, but there will be a link in the description and it's where I post poems that I write, stories that I wrote. It'll, it's mostly fictional like that, but there's probably going to be some like reviews, book mm -hmm. reviews, probably podcast reviews. Film where, reviews. Yeah, maybe movie reviews. Yeah. And I'm thinking just podcast announcements where I talk. It'll be like The Talking Dead, mm. which is a show that came that aired, I think, every night after The Walking Dead, mm -hmm. discussing the episode. I think that'd be fun to do for the podcast. So if you're interested in that, check it out. Yeah, Aaron is an incredible writer. This is one thing that he loves to do and has done since I've met him, just writing random novels and short stories, poems here and there. So he's put a lot of effort into it. So it's not, you're not gonna log on to there and be like, oh, what grade three student wrote this? You're gonna be like, oh. Grade four student. Grade four student, yeah. <laughs> so I encourage you to listen, read. Another way that I thought making helps us grow as non-economic beings is that it allows us to be defined by what we create and not by what we consume and mm. a lot of people are defined by their jobs and like what they create they're like oh i am really into photography that's who i am but i feel like being defined by your passions is much nicer than being defined by this is my aesthetic this is all of the movies that i consume all of the music i consume and in building your identity based on what other people create, but creating identity based on what you create. I agree completely. Yeah. Because I think that we are what we do mm -hmm. rather than we are what we watch or listen or, or dress. Yeah. And one thing I, I wanted to just mention, we probably should have said at the start, we're using this definition of make and creation as incredibly broad. It's kind mm -hmm. of every expression of individuality that manifests mm -hmm. in some kind of thing. Yeah, I was thinking one of my things I'm going to talk about later is designing your home, like decorating yep. and dressing yourself. But also, of course, if you're a painter or if you like to talk to friends and facilitate really great conversations, like it can really be anything. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think is kind of sad about this overlap between economics and art is that a lot of people only consider themselves an artist if they sell art. Mm -hmm. And we're kind of all artists, I think, mm -hmm. to some degree. And one thing that's been a learning curve for me is to be able to say to myself that I'm a writer, even though I've never published anything, or a painter, even though I've never hung anything in a gallery. I mean, someone, I don't know if he'd be, <laughs> we're kind of putting a spot on him, but your dad comes to mind because mm -hmm. I don't think he would ever describe himself as an artist, mm -hmm. but... He seems, but he's very creative, right? Yeah, he, he does he just a lot like of things. Whips together an arbor, like a an outdoor piece of furniture, yeah. just overnight, mm -hmm. and he's like, "Oh yeah, just made that for you. like he made one for our wedding, literally in two days." Yeah, and it's like that is the most insane form of artistry I've seen. It's just in him. Yeah, real and real artists have that kind of understated. I think mm -hmm. just it's just what they do. Yeah, I always find it funny because. I would like still am at the point where I wouldn't consider myself a podcaster because it's like this isn't my job. Exactly. But it's like we've we were talking about it the other day and we were like we've put like 120 hours on the air, like of recording. 
And that's not enough that I would consider myself a podcaster. And to the average person, they'd be like, what else are you then? Like, right. who, well, what would you call yourself? I find it helps when you when you preface it with an adjective. So it's like, mm-hmm. I'm a writer. I'm, I'm comfortable saying that because I can say to myself, well, I'm just a bad writer. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm not Shakespeare. I'm not like mm-hmm. that kind of writer, but I'm, I have the same profession. I have the same title. And <laughs> yes. that's enough. Like, we're just kind of bad podcasters. Yeah. <laughs> So the people listening are just nodding their heads right now. Like, amen. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Retweet. I had two more things for this point because I thought it was a really interesting question. Okay. And the other one is that it allows us to be like unplugged from trends. Like I find creative people are people who make for like a little bit more than the average person. They have to unplug from trends and like the cycle of things that are going on in the news, but also in the economy of like things to purchase in order to find their voice or their style. Because if you're constantly consuming products and media that are predetermined basically on like what they're going to be showing, you're gonna have a really hard time finding your voice. You're just going to be basically mimicking things, which isn't bad in the beginning, but I think you really need to step back, step outside of the picture in order to create your own interpretation of it i agree i do think it's maybe a little bit different now that the wave the culture the zeitgeist can be defined as pretty much everything so for Mm -hmm. instance if you were a budding filmmaker right now to watch the movies that we're in wouldn't just be all the new movies Mm -hmm. because there's all these different historical genres which are easily accessible and to a degree popular Mm -hmm. and it's the same with music right like tiktok's always pulling from like classic rock and things like Mm -hmm. that so there is an, an element of that culture frightening being good for an mm-hmm. artist, but I completely understand what you're saying. Yeah. Another point I had on this topic was the fact that so much beauty today is behind a paywall, mm-hmm. which kind of solidifies the idea of art as an economic transaction. So I was thinking about public spaces and the fact that there's so few that are just free to be in mm-hmm. without having to buy something or pay for a membership being inside public buildings where there might be murals or back in the day frescoes or Mm. stained glass windows in churches all this kind of this kind of beauty and aesthetics is gated from a lot of people Mm -hmm. by class which is not a good thing (laughs) yeah of course not because we need inspiration that we are interested in Mm. you can't be like oh the only form of inspiration i have access to is movies but I don't really like movies. What if your thing is architecture, as you said, or historic paintings, which you can only see in museums? Yeah, that feels really true. Another thing that's like kind of behind a paywall to me, I feel like is the literal supplies. Like I think I have this deep-rooted pottery passion within me, but I've really never made anything, like thrown anything on a wheel or whatever. Because it's like, that's just, even for one class is too expensive for me right now. And I feel like in the solo scene, we would have these spaces where we can work together, share the tools, but for like a really, either no fee or a really accessible part of, fee. Part of your library membership or something yeah, like that. exactly. I agree. I guess this question's been in my head about art and economics a little bit because of the Oscar nominations mm-hmm. that just came out. Also, just a little spoiler for the future, we were thinking about doing a whole episode where we review the Oscars whenever that happens. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of movies to watch. 
But every year it's like there's a big discussion about blockbusters and whether they deserve to be nominated. And there's two different camps. And I just think it's really important to define the line between art and products, which has been blurred a lot over the last like 50 years of late stage capitalism, especially when it comes to media corporations. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you can't really call Spider-Man anything but a product. It was researched, it was developed, it was sold. Whereas I feel like a movie like, we'll say Parasite from a few years ago, it was like conceptualized, it was fabricated, it was brought together and presented to the public. I feel like those are different adjectives, exact same product, like a award-winning movie, but different. You said it, not me. Different brain power going in. I don't want all the spiders coming after me, so I don't want to criticize anything. <laughs> also, I think when you said adjectives, you might have meant verbs, but... Verbs. Yes, Who I knows? <laughs> You're the writer, not me. We also had two fun questions that we wanted to answer mm -hmm. for this episode. So the first is, where is your ideal creative pilgrimage? Okay. So you go first. So I thought I would start by saying what my creative things are, like what I would kind of call myself. It's a good idea. In air quotes, so people don't aren't confused. I like to create clothing, be it crocheting or sewing or embroidering. I love to bake. You can't stop me from baking, <laughs> even if we don't need any more muffins. And photography is something that I'm really passionate about. That's one of those things which has just always been in me. Like I remember for probably 10 years in a row, I asked for some kind of like photography tool for Christmas. But I didn't realize that trend until I was like, probably when I asked for like a camera finally I was like I want like a nice camera that isn't these other things that I had always been like really hoping for and then when I got it I literally cried on Christmas morning my parents were like you are you okay and I was like this is the most wonderful thing ever that's when I realized I was like I think I'm a photographer at heart and I've never worked professionally as a photographer but I love it and have done it for years and years. I used to make movies when I was a kid with my friends, direct them, write the scripts and everything. You have any hmm? any any you could mention? There's The Wizard of Odd. <laughs> there was Sunday School Musical. There were always comedies because right. I guess um, even when you weren't trying. Even when I wasn't trying. Um anyway, those are my things. And then obviously podcasting. But my creative pilgrimage, despite those being my things, is to go to Cannes Film Festival. Oh, yeah. Because I think I can say this pretty definitely. Even more than nature, I think films inspire me to create. Okay. They're what inspire how I dress. They would inspire how I behave, how I frame shots when I take pictures, and probably how I speak is almost 100% from films. And that's why I feel like going to Cannes and going on the red carpet and being in one of those rooms when like Tarantino walks in or someone walks in. And like sits down in front of you or someone gives a speech, I feel like that would be just a life-changing experience, even if I was just there as like a sweeper, someone sweeping the red carpet. Yeah. I think it'd be wonderful. Being part of a six-minute standing ovation. Yeah. You always hear about that. It's like, oh, this movie got an 11-minute standing ovation. I'm like, that must have been awkward, though. Mm -hmm. How, who's... You just got to keep it going. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a short film in itself, though. Yeah. You mentioned that podcasting is a creative endeavor. You think that? Yeah. Huh. Because... People talk about YouTube videos as a creative endeavor. You have to write the script. You have to do the framing. You have to conceptualize what the episodes will be about. Right. And I feel like that's what we do. We don't write a script, but we put a decent amount of planning in. We 
coordinate when we will record. And obviously, we perform for an hour straight of like talking. And then there's the editing process and so on. Real performance. Yeah. I think the good conversation is is art. Mm-hmm. That's what we, we strive for. I think sometimes we mm-hmm. fall short. Yeah, sometimes I feel like we're just in two separate rooms. But <laughs> <laughs> we do our best. Yeah, we do. It takes practice. I feel like that's what art is. I'm reading a book called The Art of Loving. And it's like, you have to work at it. You have to have intentions. You have to be creative to problem solve. And that's what makes loving an art. So why isn't podcasting an art? What was your answer to the question? Oh, my ideal creative pilgrimage. I had a few answers. The first that came to mind was Scotland. But I think... Obsessed. I'm obsessed. But here's the thing. I'm obsessed for maybe two months of the year, mm-hmm. starting this year. Because I, I know that when the weather gets warm, I'm not going to want to go to Scotland or the UK or old castles or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But I think I'm just incredibly affected by the seasons. Mm-hmm. So as soon as those leaves start to fall in the autumn. Break out the sweaters. <laughs> yeah. Break out the, the I just cups. Be- become a completely different person. Yeah. But what I like about Scotland is the yeah the castles and just that that real sense of wild nature. Mm. I think yeah. that, like untamed. That's very appealing to me. And another one that I've been thinking of lately is a boat, especially in a warm mm-hmm. area, because I was reading about Jules Verne and how he used to write on a boat. Mm-hmm. He actually had two boats that he would write on. And it wasn't even so much about exploring, although sometimes he would go places on them. It was more about, I guess, just being disconnected like that, mm-hmm. which is very cool. And another image with the boats that sticks with me is of that one room that sometimes appears in SpongeBob's house, mm-hmm. the library. My favorite room in his house. Yes. It's only in some episodes. And when you look at his house from the outside, I don't know if it makes sense unless it's underground. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. I just want to have a bunch of books on a boat. Mm-hmm. I understand. You once went to Shakespeare's hometown. Yeah, we both went. Yes. But I was more of a observer, whereas you were just... I feel like that was almost a creative pilgrimage for you. It definitely was. Because the awe in your eyes was just like a child at Disney World. You were like... This is where he sat. This is the window you looked out of. These are the gloves. Like you were really, yeah. You were really um, in a state when you we went there. It was beautiful. Mm-hmm. My final answer for this question, and the one that I would say is my actual ideal creative pilgrimage, is just Japan. Mm-hmm. And I'm upset that I didn't think of the Cannes Film Festival either. But I think <laughs> I'm going to stick with Japan because they just seem like they have a really distinct and I think beautiful sense of aesthetics. Mm-hmm. It's part of the reason why. I open with a haiku mm-hmm. and I have another one for later. And oh. <laughs> that country just seems like a a splendid mix of high-tech cities, mm-hmm. which are inspiring in their own way, as well as tradition and nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would love to learn about just other countries' mm. art history. We've exclusively learned about the European art history and not even all of Europe, just like very limited parts of it. So That's that true. is a very good idea. <laughs> To expand your horizons. The other fun question is, what's your favorite thing you've made? My answer is Solacine. Okay. Because you said it was creative. So Mm -hmm. this is the only thing that I've ever made and shared that has gotten, I would say, genuine positive feedback. Yeah. Especially from complete strangers and from strangers in other parts of the world. And it makes my day every time we get a comment like that. So... Yeah, yeah so every time we get an email, we both talk about it probably for hours. I'm just like, <laughs> can you believe it? Someone's listening. My friend said to me the other day, she's like, oh, I listened to this episode, and this was the organism of the week. And I was like, you listened and you 
like heard. You didn't just like play it. <laughs> it was mind blowing to me. And yes, I agree. I was going to pick this, but then I thought perhaps you might pick it. So yeah, you I, thought perhaps. I know you're snooping in my notes. No, I yeah, you're snooping in my notes. I've seen you do it. I don't snoop. What I like about so seen aside from just reaching out to other people that does is that it helps me it helps us improve as speakers it helps my articulation which i've always kind of wanted to improve at mm-hmm. keeps me preparing and professional mm-hmm. it's an exercise in consistency it keeps us learning in the different topics and especially post university i think it's actually been a, a kind of important structure in my life mm-hmm. so yeah yeah for sure i for things that i've made I was thinking through it, and besides Solacine, there isn't much that I'm like proud of that I make, because every time you make something, you're super critical of it. And every time you make something, I eat it. You do tend to eat it. So I was going through all of like my highlights of like baking endeavors, but then I thought, no, probably not that. And for some reason, these pictures that I took a couple years ago kept coming to my mind, and they haven't like received feedback or anything. I just kind of took them, but I will explain why these are my favorite pictures. I was just in bed, I was like working just like a kind of boring job as a tour guide and I had this idea and I was like, there's these costumes that are just like stored away at my workplace. And it was like a super quiet season because it was COVID. And I was like, what if I dress up this one girl, go down below deck on the ship that we worked on and got a shot with the lighting coming through the porthole. And like, it was like super specific in this like idea came to me all at once and it's like, Usually when those things happen, it's like you're dreaming and then you wake up and you're like, oh, that was just a really bad idea. Mm. But then I went to work the next day and asked her, I was like, can I take this picture of you? And she's like, yeah, sure. We went down below and literally I got like one shot because we had to kind of rush. It was just like for work and it ended up being used, fortunately, for a good purpose of like promotion. (laughs) But I took the picture and it was like one of my favorite pictures ever taken. Like the lighting like is shining on one side of her face. The costume worked super well. And just, I don't know. It was like my favorite picture I've taken. And then other than that, something that I made recently that was your idea to make, but I was really happy with the execution, was that we made a duvet cover out of two sheets. And for some reason, making that, I was like, it's super useful. I made it in a way that was durable. Usually things that I make, I'm like, are a little shoddy because I'm still learning how to sew and everything. But I was really proud of that. It turned out exactly how I imagined it put little ties on the top to tie the duvet into the cover. And it was just really creative because duvet covers are expensive. And you were like, just use two sheets that we yeah. don't use. That's when my cheapness results in uh, yeah. an actual good creative endeavor. Yeah, and I think that's one of my favorite things I've made because it's like we use it every day. Yeah. If the listeners want to see that photo you're talking about, maybe mm-hmm. they can check it out on the Solar Scene Instagram. Yeah, I'll put it on the story there. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe I'll send a picture... Through Instagram. That's how you post, right? You send it in um, of the duvet cover. Yeah, that's kind of weird, but... Yeah, just really up close. They're like, what's this? I was like, <laughs> it's a duvet stripes. cover. Yeah. Okay, the next question that we wanted to talk about is how does making change the way we practice taking? Or to use the popular lexicon, how does creation change the way we consume? Mm. So as a writer, a bad writer... I use that as my context, and I thought of the ways that reading is different when I'm writing or involved in a project compared to when I'm not, because I think like all artists, like all makers, um, however passionate you are about a medium, sometimes you want to do it and sometimes you just don't, and you kind of mm-hmm. go, through, go through phases. Mm-hmm. So the differences that I thought of 
is that when I'm writing, I read in a way which is actively trying to learn the form, mm -hmm. which results in seeking out better authors than when I'm not writing. Mm -hmm. Can you relate to that? Yeah, I certainly can. Even from like the literature point of view, I stopped reading a lot of fiction because I just, for the podcast in life, needed more nonfiction. And it's like I used to just kind of read whatever was popular and the stories that were the most engaging, but they weren't to me. Like, this is definitely really personal, like, doing anything for me the way that I find nonfiction non does. And it also translates to, like, everything else. The way that I consume is either in a way that I'm seeking intentionally something inspiring or something instructional. So, like, you'll consume YouTube videos that are literally teaching you how to do something or mm -hmm. even if it's, like, a vlog or a memoir that you're reading you're reading it kind of for instruction or like guidance i find another way that i kind of thought it changes the way that we consume is that it encourages critical consumption so not just like critiquing movies and such which is kind of obvious but it also encourages you to critique the process of things like when you knit or when you crochet you think about okay i need to get my yarn need to pick a pattern need to make it it's going to take me like months yeah. to make this one thing. So then even when you then go to the store and buy a pre-made meal or you buy clothes or whatever, you think, how is this $2 if the resources had to be sourced, the people had to be hired to market it, to create it and so on? It makes you a little more critical of those things. Yeah. Some would say a lot more critical. Well, I, I took it as like a two-sided thing because knowing more about something it makes you more appreciative of the artistry and the process that went into mm -hmm. it. Whereas otherwise people might kind of look over that. So you say yeah. like there's the, the $2 thing and you're saying, how is this so cheap? Let's say it's like a, a handmade hat, which mm -hmm. someone's selling for like, I don't know, $50 on Etsy. Mm -hmm. And most people will be like, oh, how are they charging that much? But you who have made hats now are like, well, actually it takes a lot. Yeah. So, you, so you have that kind of uh, empathy for them. And another example I had is, it seems like there's this brotherhood of and sisterhood of comedians where they all kind of relate to each other, mm. where that, like, they all have stories about when they are in the audience of a different stand-up comic, they will be deliberately laughing because they know what it feels like to be on the stage. Mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of like that. Yeah. But I also thought that, yeah, sometimes it, it makes you more critical. Like since I started learning about movies and screenplays, you start to realize how formulaic most mm -hmm. of them are. Yeah. But you also, I feel, I feel like it's funny how like, okay, you're into movies and writing, but when you read a book or when you consume a piece of art, you're probably also thinking of the process of those things, even if those aren't what you are engaged in, if that makes sense. Yeah, sometimes. How it kind of translates across. It just kind of makes you more aware in a lot of facets of life, not just that one specific part of life. That's true. On the subject of kind of your relationship to the creator of the other thing changing mm -hmm. there was this quote from a movie review i read that always stuck with me which said the best directors either make me think that i could never do that or wow i could do that mm -hmm. and i was like yeah that's kind of and both of them are, are good i just thought that was that was kind of a funny way of putting it another difference i thought of is that when you are actively making something it just makes you look at the world and not just other pieces of art mm -hmm. in a different way and i would say with wider eyes less preconceptions and part of the reason for this i think is because anything can be inspiration especially if you're be it visual or narrative or oh that smells cool i kind of want to cook with something mm -hmm. like that i don't really know how chefs work but um <laughs> an example of this i had is stanley kubrick the film director and 
there's a lot of famous stories about where he just would read and watch and talk to everything and everybody because he really had no preferences or no discrimination about what he was taking in. Because mm -hmm. when you take in such a wide range of themes and news and, I don't know, gossip, like celebrities, industry, technology, different mediums, history, everything, I think that ultimately is helping us learn, helping us grow. And in the creative element, then you can combine those things in new ways. So. Yeah. The only other thing that I had for this question was that I feel like how it changes the way that we practice taking is that you either are in one of two camps. If you start, like, you have a passion. I feel like that kind of consumes you. If, it's, if you're truly passionate about it, like, you're going to be doing it way more than you would anything else. It's the Tarantino archetype, right? Yes. Just watching three movies a day. Yeah, so you're either going to start watching three movies a day or start reading 100 books a year or whatever. Or if it's something different, like if it's woodworking, something a bit more physical, you might just consume less because you have way more time that you're spending on these projects. You're spending three hours a day on these projects, so you're not going to have time to go to the store and just like browse or browse Netflix or what have you. I agree. It's not even about logistics. I think it's just two different personality types. Mm -hmm. They can both be as creative. Like there's, There are filmmakers as prolific and as high quality and as renowned as Tarantino who famously don't really like watching movies. Mm -hmm. like that's just a thing. I remember I was watching this director's roundtable once and I think it was Angelina Jolie. They asked her like, oh, what kind of music do you listen to on set? And she said, when I'm in the process, so that's like from script to post-production, can't listen to any music because mm -hmm. it just completely takes over. It distracts yeah. me like that. So there can definitely be something to a clear mind yeah. allowing you to focus better on the on your own stuff. It's a good place for my second haiku of the day. You ready? I'm ready. So it's great your loyalty, non-judgmental canvas, how you give me purpose. Ooh, I really like that. This was more about the idea of ego and the fact that even if you're a really bad painter or a really bad writer, the mm. good thing is that if it's just for you, the paper's always going to be there. Yeah. It's not going to leave if you besmirch it. Yeah. I was reading about the literal, like, physical and psychological benefits of creating, and there was this anecdote about this girl who she was just super stressed in high school or whatever, and she colored just a piece of paper completely black. Have you ever done that? No. I have. There have been times where I'm like, do you know what I need to do? Just color this piece of paper in. Because it's like, <laughs> but then at the end, she like did that, but then she's like, well, that's bleak. That's like how I'm feeling. But then she like looked around all her other art supplies and she was like, oh, I'm going to make some flowers out of clay. It's like the black feeling is like spring, like it's dark at the beginning, but then you kind of have to hold on for the, the flowers to actually bloom. And there's just something innate about a blank canvas that it's like yeah as you said even if you're not a painter like having an opportunity having a blank notebook or having a chunk of time where you can just consume some really lovely music or movies yeah that helps you keep going and helps you like expand your capacity to handle kind of the gross parts of life no i agree with that that's something i've been experiencing since we moved to montreal i've mostly been cooking for us mm -hmm. and this is like i've never really cooked in my it's life very before unique. regularly <laughs> yeah and I thought, like, I kept kind of warning you before we moved here. I was like, oh, just be ready because my cooking will be awful. And I'm very uh, kind of utilitarian with it. I won't bother with any kind of flavor. I think that's mm -hmm. the word, flavor. I don't think 
it's it's pure nutrition. It's just just gonna be nutrition paste. But then as I started um, actually cooking, I was like, no, this is kind of, dare I say it, enjoyable. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a kind of creative outlet. And I like the idea of, I mean, I went for a house husband and made a little um, meal plan, we do have a meal which we plan. have on the wall. And I like the idea of filling it every week, especially with sometimes new things. Because mm -hmm. it's kind of like a blank canvas. Yeah, a new ingredient or a completely new meal. And I'm very proud of you for this change because I used to do a lot of the cooking. When we were in university, you'd come over for supper a lot. Then sometimes I'd come over to your place for supper <laughs> and it would be an emotional experience. I'd, I'd try. You tried, I know. But you, you've gotten really good at cooking. And speaking of cooking, do you know what the organism of the week is? Um, bugs. No. Okay. So there's this plant that I didn't know existed until moving to Montreal. And it's not native to Montreal or anything. It's just <laughs> I didn't know it existed until I moved here because I saw it in someone's house. But it's called a, calum a calamondin. Okay. And it is a cross between a mandarin orange and a kumquat. And they're these little tiny orange trees that people just have in their houses. And there's some in cafes. And they were originally crossbred in China and then brought over to North America in like 1900 around then. And they can grow 10 to 12 feet tall, but a lot of people just have them in little pots in their houses. I drew an image for you okay. to describe, but it's pretty simple. This is the new thing we do for organisms a week. We draw it, yes. <laughs> well, my first uh, note is that you spent about as much time on the pot as you did on the plant that's actually in it. So it's true. I'll try to ignore that. It's a nice pot though. Thank you. It has brown. <laughs> Tell me to do with markers, but yes, a brown trunk. Brown trunk, brown soil, mm -hmm. uh, orange circles springing off it, as yes. well as uh, green petals. But it's in a pot. That's like the main. Yes, yes, it's in a pot. Okay. The main point, because a lot of fruit trees are often just in fields, but these are often in pots because they're ornamental. But they also you can eat the little kumquat things, and they're really, really sour though. It's probably because they don't survive in Montreal. It's probably why they're in the pots. The thing with these that I find really cool is that they probably wouldn't survive in Montreal, but they do survive in a lot of cold climates. Hmm. And a lot of fruit, especially citrus, you couldn't grow anywhere north of, like, Florida. Have you, tr you tried one and it's not good? I thought it was nice. I had one off of this person's dream. But it was very sour. Like, it's like a lemon or a lime. Right. They're usually used in drinks or ah, cooking okay. or you make marmalade out of them and they're shade and drought tolerant they seem really hardy to me like and the fruits my favorite part about them is that they're really small like they're the size of like a lime and i just think they're really really cool looking because we never have like fruit trees in our houses we have greenery so i think if we ever get a new plant this is what i want well shout out to the what's it called calamondin tree to the calamondin yes Come on the show. Yeah. <laughs> Sponsor us. <laughs> we just have three cameras and one of them is uh, <laughs> one of them is on the set on the tree. We just catch what thoughts? <laughs> that could be a gimmick. That could be a gimmick. Also with we're gonna start recording the podcast yes. so, on video. Yeah, we're recording right now with this. We'll never see the light of day. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> okay, something else I wanted to mention, I don't know where it fits, is that I've been reading this book called Paris in the Twentieth Century by Jules Verne. 
And I just found it in the library without having heard of it. And it was something which he wrote in the 1800s, which his editor basically said, no, I'm not publishing this. This will never sell. This is too outlandish, which is really funny. And then it was discovered in the 1900s. And they were like, oh, this is actually fairly prescient because it's this world, it's Paris, 100 years after Jules Verne's life, where he predicted it as being everything economic, everything numbers, and all sorts of, all forms of poetry or artistry shunned and mocked mm -hmm. because they didn't contribute to one's economic value. Mm -hmm. And I was like, we're not far away from that. But I do have the feeling that maybe every generation thinks that the future, thinks that things are going mm -hmm. bad in that direction. It's, I don't think it's ever been easy to be creative, I'll put it like mm -hmm. that. This might actually be one of the easier times to be creative. Yeah, I feel like there's this low-key false sense of security as a creative person of like it seems like everyone can make a living on the internet doing something creative which i think is valid but also to do that you have to put in so many hours of like right. marketing and networking and things that like aren't actually the creating yeah pe people might think that all it, all it would take is the skill of painting mm -hmm. which is maybe not the case anymore mm -hmm. final question of the day is how does making change our minds and therefore change the world we kind of talked about it earlier, but like we look for creativity and inspiration and everything I find when we are making. Yeah. And I feel like that lends to less negativity. Perhaps. Because it's like if you're having a conversation with someone and instead of being like griping about their personality or how they articulate their words or whatever, you're just looking for the good in them or you are walking through a kind of dingy street. But instead of being like, oh, so gross, you're like inspiring you instead to perhaps clean, pick up the garbage or true. beautify it in some way. My point on that was that it just generally helps hone our aesthetic senses so that we try and beautify the world, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And also we all get better at imagining. It's like art is kind of this collective exercise of imagination. Mm -hmm. When you go into an art gallery, it's like a conveyor belt of people walking through, staring at the painting, especially if it's an abstract one, getting into it. And then moving on to the next and that's something and then hopefully mm -hmm. coming out of the museum slightly changed mm -hmm. which i think is great and um so was Sini. yeah i feel like right now all of us just operate in our heads like almost exclusively we go through life and we just have a bunch of thoughts or we have a bunch of images shown to us but we don't operate very much in like our physical bodies so as you begin to create in whatever way it manifests if you're decorating your home or whatever you're getting into your physical body. And as you said, you're going to be more inclined to create spaces that are functional and beautiful and conducive to well-being instead of just if we're always in our head, we don't actually spend the time to think, oh, my house is really like depressing. Like it really <laughs> has a negative impact on my mood. And even people who come here, they're not leaving inspired. So I feel like you it encourages beautification. And it's like, obviously not everyone has the money to beautify their home, but it could just be how things are laid out. Yeah. Or how you, yeah, maintain it. And along the same lines of like the physical and versus like mental existence, I feel like as we spend more time in our physical bodies, it lends better to more mental clarity. Because when everything's going on in our heads and there's really no outlet, like you're spending no time actually putting your ideas onto paper, even if you're really bad at it, journaling is just like such a powerful tool for mental clarity because you're putting it out into the world. Yeah. It's like you could type it on your phone, you could text it to someone, but it's like 
etching it into paper just actually creates mental space. This isn't just like my idea, like it is a thing. Yeah, I had some, I, I was looking into the science of creation a little bit and it's just across the board, people say, well, this is really good for your brain. Mm -hmm. Even if you're making like, I don't know, heavy metal music. Mm -hmm. Like there, there is no form of music that is bad for your brain to be making mm -hmm. as long as it's music and as long as it's a creative exercise for you. Mm -hmm. So making increases the functional connectivity in our brain as well as the activation of the visual cortex mm -hmm. less stress better self-esteem self-understanding and self-knowledge and my takeaway from that is that a world where people confront their pain and fear especially fear of the future on a canvas mm -hmm. rather than with each other through mm -hmm. politics or just through fights about who was next in line in the grocery store it's a good world. And the other thing about making art is that not only is it healthy, but it's also eminently sustainable because really the only downside, the only real, realistic downside to making too much music is that you get really good at it. Mm -hmm. And that's just not a bad thing. Yeah, exactly. I feel like the sustainability issue of culture and of environment can exclusively be solved through creative endeavors. <laughs> We're not going to just like all of a sudden a plant is going to open up with a note that says this is the answer. It's going to take people having ideas in a ton of different areas. It's not going to be just one person who works as an architect. I've solved climate change. Or I've solved the mental health crisis. It's going to be a bunch of people doing their own little things. And then the change will come sprout from there. Like bean sprouts we've been talking about. You have to be the sprout. Another term that I learned was embodied cognition. Do you know what that is? Sort of. You can explain it though. <laughs> so embodied cognition is basically when you're reading about someone on a beach and through the imagery and the text, as well as through your own um, effort as a reader, you start to smell the ocean, feel the sand, feel the sun, hear the waves. Mm -hmm. Embodied cognition, like you're putting yes. yourself in the scene. And that concept struck me. Of course, we all know about that intuitively because... We start reading from a young age usually but because of all the corporate talk and studio talk which i guess is corporate these days of immersion increased immersion through vr through better screens through bigger screens mm. all this all these new technologies and it's like immersion and imagination are kind of contrasting things it's almost as if the more immersed you are in the art the less your imagination has to work. And this is why mm. I think reading's so good for you and also music's so good for you because it's a little bit more abstract. Mm -hmm. So you, you kind of grow your analytical skills as well as your imagination, mm -hmm. which is always good. I had this quote from Picasso, which is, art washes from the soul the dust of everyday life. Mm. Cleanses lovely. us. Cleanses us. Yeah. And visual art, I think, is especially good, even though I'm not much of a painter mm -hmm. or a drawer because it allows us to be it's like it allows us to be at once more abstract and also more concrete mm -hmm. because I know like in art therapy, it's usually visual art that's used rather than mm -hmm. say, write me a poem. They would say, paint me a picture of how you're feeling because, mm -hmm. well, because we usually think and talk in language. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to actually expressing the true emotions, which are deep down, that might not be the best avenue. Yeah, for sure. My final thought for this question of how of how making changes our minds and therefore the earth is kind of like unrelated to what we were saying but it's my final thought that i had and it teaches us that we can't be masters of everything that you need teams to make things happen because i feel like we 
feel that we have to be masters of everything. If you want to start a YouTube channel, you have to know every single tiny thing that exists. And it's like, we have to start being content with, okay, my thing is podcasting. My thing isn't perhaps marketing. It teaches you your limitations. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And encourages, therefore, community and collaboration. And I feel like that's how it can kind of change the world. Because as you create and begin to gain confidence in a field, or a few, like you can have a few things that you're good at, you then will realize, okay, I want to start a business. Or, okay, I want to put this in an art gallery. I'm not going to build the art gallery. I need to rely on someone else who that's their calling is curation or whatever it is. And I think that's really powerful in creating the solo scene is working together, being comfortable, just saying, I'm going to get good at my things, you get good at your things, and then we'll come together and work on a bigger social project. Well said. I think it's a good way to close the episode. Yeah. If you all want to check out the blog, the link is in the description. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't remember the name of it. It's solo scene at some, some blogging website. Um, <laughs> You can also buy our zine, even though we finished the degrowth series, we're still making and selling them. So check that out and have a nice day.